All right, so in Ruth chapter 2, when we left off last week, it was a pretty gloomy state, right? Our, the two main characters that we've met so far, Ruth and Naomi, have basically lost everything, right? They've, they've lost, in Naomi's case, she's lost her husband and her sons. Ruth has lost her husband. Ruth has no children. There is no real future hope in their family. Ruth has lost her, her home and her, her family. She's, she's left her country to follow Naomi. She's, she's committed herself to Naomi. She's saying, I'm going to hold up my end of my promise that I committed when I left, when I left my family to be married to your son. I am committed to you. I'm going to do whatever I can now to serve you, to, to stay with you. And what we talked about last week was in, in both of these kind of desperate situations, both of these women had two completely different reactions, right? Naomi just got bogged down in bitterness. She was angry with God. She, she thought that God was out to get her, in a sense. She had been cursed by God, and all he was doing was making her life as miserable as could be. And she was telling Ruth, Ruth, there's no reason for you to want to spend the rest of your life with me because you're just going to get eaten up in this same curse that I'm feeling. But Naomi's... Um, and Naomi comes back and she says, I've come back with nothing. Call me bitter. I, 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 am, I have come back empty. Right? And we talked about the irony of that as Ruth standing right there with her, having committed her life to stay with her. Right? So, so, so Naomi had not come back empty. She had come back with somebody who said, I am going to do what I can with all of my might right, to serve you to make sure that you are taken care of. Something that we're going to talk about today. We're going to get a really good picture of what Ruth's heart is today. Because Ruth hadn't just left her family to commit herself to Naomi. She committed herself to Naomi's God. She said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to leave all of the gods that I've served all of my life. And I am going to follow you. And I'm going to serve your God. Your God will be my God. And what we're going to see today is that by, by relying on the, run, the one true God, the creator of everything, that, that Ruth is going to be blessed by him in a very tangible way. Sometimes we talk about how we get the blessing of God and, and, and it doesn't necessarily affect us in like a physical sense. Like we, I, we could tell you, you're going to get eternal life even though you might not get to eat today. You know, that's, that's kind of a thing that we've said as we've looked through our studies and acts and things. It's like, just because God's blessing you doesn't mean that he's going to necessarily make you more comfortable right here. What we're going to see today is that God's actually going to bless Ruth for her faithfulness. And he's going to do that through our new main character that we're going to introduce today, Boaz. So when we pick up here in chapter 2, we're going to get the first real formal introduction of this character. So we'll just read the first couple of verses here. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I'll stop right there. Right off the bat... We're going to learn three important things about Boaz. Okay, first thing that we're going to learn, um, he is a wealthy man. He's obviously got a field that he owns, and we're going to learn through the conversation that's going to follow that he's got people who work for him. He has people who who work his field for him. He's not in this by himself. 
He's more coming in in just a few verses. He's going to come in to check on the progress of work in his field. So this is the status of the man that we're talking about here. He's, he's pretty well off. He's, he's going to be able to take care of himself. The second thing that we're going to learn is that he has character. When it says that he's a worthy man that can talk about, you know, his wealth and his, his status, you know, monetarily in society. But what that's also referring to is that Boaz had a great deal of character. People respected him. He wasn't somebody who took advantage of other people in order to gain more wealth or to prop himself up. He was an honest man. He was a man who was earned the respect of the people in the, in the city. And in chapter 3, we're going to have the same word. The same word worthy is also going to describe Ruth. So, so though it could refer to his wealth or to his character, in chapter 3, it's absolutely talking about Ruth's character. So we can assume that the intent of the author here is to help us recognize that Boaz isn't just some wily business guy who comes in and owns a field and he's just going to try to give away something in order to make himself look good. This guy genuinely seems to be compassionate for people, care about the people that work for him, and we're going to find out, want to help Ruth in a genuine way. He genuinely wants to help Ruth out. And the last thing that we learn is that he's from the same clan as Naomi's husband, which we're going to learn a whole lot more about next week. Um, we're, going to just, we're going to talk about how he is a kinsman redeemer, and we'll talk about what all that means and some of the cultural significance of that when we focus on chapter 3 next week. But what we need to understand is that he is from the same clan, which is a kind of a big family unit of Naomi's um, husband. And so, as such, th these, these clans were probably the most important kind of family unit in the country. And their whole purpose of knowing who was in your clan was so that you could seek the benefit, seek the welfare of everybody in your clan. Make sure that everyone is taken care of. Um, make sure that there, are, there isn't a widow, in this case, or widows who don't have anything to eat, who are not taken care of. Uh, we talked about last week kind of the desperate situation that Ruth and Naomi were in because they didn't have... Neither of them had a husband or children to help take care of them into their old age. And so they were in a really desperate situation. There aren't a lot of options for them to go out and make sure that they're able to provide food for themselves. Um, but, but these family units were recognized as a way that you could seek out your family and your family would do what they could to help take care of you. Hopefully, in a sense, I was thinking about this, kind of like the way the church works today. Like you have your, your, your small family unit that you go home with after we get done here today. But in a sense, we kind of think of ourselves as kind of a bigger family. We think of ourselves as one big group who's interested in seeking the welfare of one another, making sure that everybody's taken care of, making sure that nobody's going hungry, or making sure that everyone is able to continue to push forward in our mission. We're here to support one another. We're not going to leave anyone left behind. You know, we're not, going to, we're not going to abandon one of our brothers and sisters within the church. And I kind of think that's the easiest picture that I could give you of what these family units look like. But what you have to realize is these family units, they recognize them as we're tight. We're in this together. We're, we're going to fight for one another. A mindset that doesn't always translate into our church in this culture today. Right? Oftentimes we think of, I'm going to church and then I'm going home with my family. 
And that's kind of the end of it. Maybe I'll go to community group or maybe I'll come serve on this one thing. But really, I'm doing this with my family. I don't think of the greater church, the part of the body of Christ that I get to gather with on a weekly basis. We don't necessarily feel that same family bond. And that's what we really, really want here at CRC. We really, really want us to feel that tight, that close, that in it together, that, that amount of we're going to support each other as we push forward, as we try to take the gospel to their surrounding neighborhoods here, as we try to love the people that come in here on a weekly basis, as we're, as we're just sitting in here studying, keeping the doors open, that sort of thing. We're in here to support one another. We're in this together. If somebody's hurt, we hurt with them. If somebody is going through a tough time, we're there to back them up, to support them. That's the kind of picture that I want us to have of the church. And what we're going to see here as we, as we continue pushing through the book of Ruth is that within this family unit, it was so closely tied to, to making each other whole. And when we talked about this last week, this is kind of our big picture for the whole book of Ruth, that, 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 that Jesus is going to take our brokenness, our emptiness, and he's going to make us whole. Our desire is that when we see brokenness and emptiness, especially within the church, that we want to do what we can to make each other whole, to help complete that brokenness or that emptiness that we find within our family. That's what we're looking for. And we talked about last week how that is done by, and we translated it as selfless acts of love, like selfless acts of kindness, Desiring to serve somebody voluntarily, trying to bless somebody. And that word that we used was hesed. And we're going to use that, we're going to see that word several times throughout chapter 2. We're going to see, we're going to see Boaz making sacrificial, selfless gifts to try to bless another person. And we already have established that he's got high character, he's respected by people. So, so out of his character is going to come these sorts of actions. One other thing I want you to notice before we really get moving forward is that Naomi is still just sitting in the house. Right? How, I don't know how long it's been from chapter 1 to chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, it kind of gave us the transition. It's like, it's about time for the barley harvest. And now Ruth's getting ready to go out to try to glean in the fields during the barley harvest. And Naomi's still just sitting there. Right? She's still probably... Lost in her bitterness, she's not really taken any initiative. And Ruth, who we've seen still respects and wants to serve Naomi, goes and asks her for permission. Naomi's sitting, okay, so you've probably known the person who's the lazy slob. In my life, that's me. Um, that person that you're like, you need to get up and do something is typically the way you would want to treat that person. I'm going I'm to paint you a modern day picture. She's probably sitting there in sweatpants watching... Some sort of daytime talk show, drinking her third or fourth cup of coffee, and just being sad about herself. Look at how miserable I am. And instead of saying, Naomi, you got to get up and go do something, Ruth says, Naomi, I would like to do something for you. I would like to serve you. I'd like to try to find a way that we could eat. Is it okay? Can I have your blessing to go out and try to find work so that I can serve you? So Ruth, even, in the, even though she's sitting next to somebody who is sitting there lost in her bitterness, unwilling to move, just going to sit there and be angry with God, she's still going to rightly ask for her blessing to go out and do this task. Right? So, so Ruth isn't going to buy into the temptation 
to just get frustrated. You are doing nothing. Why are you sitting there lazily just, just being lost in your bitterness towards God? Why don't you get... She's not, she's not giving into that. Something that, that we would all probably tend to do, right? I would probably tend to not have patience for somebody who's lazier than me. And that's saying something, to be lazier than me. So she asks her permission, and she gives her her blessing, and so she goes out to glean in the fields. And the process of gleaning, basically, the law provided an opportunity for the people who could not afford to go buy food to go into the fields and basically pick up what was left behind as people were harvesting in the fields. So they would be harvesting, and the law said, basically, like, if you drop a piece of grain, don't go back. And meticulously get every single little piece to make sure that you've gleaned everything. If you drop a piece, keep moving forward so that the poor can come behind you and pick up the scraps so that maybe they can have enough to eat themselves. And so the law provided this provision. God was interested in taking care of the poor, the people who did not have food. All along, God was interested in providing a means for these people to eat. So the law provided for it, but that doesn't always mean that it was... Obeyed by the people who own fields. Which is why you see Ruth saying, let me go find a field where I'm going to find somebody's favor. Let me go find somebody who's going to be nice about this and let me do it, who's not going to run me off. Because even though the law said it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody abided by it. It doesn't mean that, that it was 100% of the time, just pick a field and start picking up stuff. People were not always that generous. People would often run people off. Or people could be treated very poorly, which we're going to see here is a real fear that Ruth had. So then we get to this phrase in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. That, that part where it says, and she happened, or and it happened that, the act, like if you literally translated those words, it would say, and her chance chanced. Like, it's basically trying to say, and wouldn't you know, like, what are the odds that of all the fields that she could have ended up in, she ends up in the field of this one guy who happened to be related to Naomi's husband, who happened to be one of her kinsmen redeemers. Who, what are the odds? That's basically what that phrase is trying to say. It's trying to paint this as an, like an ironic hyperbole, right? Like, there is no way. The, the odds are just astounding that she would just walk into this field owned by this guy, it is such a coincidence that this would happen. And, and as it continues to say, and, 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 and maybe I'm making more of it than is actually intended, but I don't think so. I think the point is it's trying to set up a contrast. The, the author is trying to say, look at the coincidence. And he leaves us to say, how could that be a coincidence, right? Because what we're going to find is that there is no coincidence in the Bible. We don't find, these things don't just happen. These things are carefully written out and orchestrated by God. And she was led to that field owned by this guy very specifically so that God could do something miraculous in her life and miraculous in the history of the world, as we'll find out. So, so he sets up this contrast. And it just so happened that she found this field, even though what we're really trying to read here is, and then God did something extraordinary. God brought her to this field. So let's move on. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. 
Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So as Boaz finally approaches the scene, he's had his little, his little preview. We were told who this guy was. As he walks into the scene, the first thing that we get is a reinforcement of his character. He walks in, says to his guys, hey, the Lord be with you. And we get a response back from him of respect as well. We see that it's not like he's some ruling tyrant who... who who treats all, these, all of his workers like dirt and they don't respect him, they don't like him, they don't appreciate him. He walks in and says, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you too. Like, they respect him too. So we get reinforcement of his character. One of the things that's interesting is, I mean, yeah, we're really focusing on Ruth here, but there's no reason to believe, because obviously he doesn't, have a problem with Ruth being out there gleaning. There's probably no reason to believe that there aren't many people out here in the field gleaning. And I think it's interesting that the moment he shows up, for whatever reason, and it doesn't say why, she catches his eye. Right? There, for some reason, he shows up and he's like, wait, who's she? Right? Not gonna get into, I'm not going to turn this into a romantic comedy of a, of, of a story. We're not, we're not preaching that, that version of sermons through this book. We're focusing on different things. But, but for whatever reason, she catches his eye. And, it, and, and it's one of those, it kind of goes back to the, as it happened, she's in his field. As it happened, she catches his eye. As it happened, he says, who is she? Tell me about her. Right? And, and, and then we're given a description, again, of now Ruth's character. So we've learned a bit about Boaz's character, but now we're going to get a clear picture <laughs> of Ruth's character. He says, she came up and asked, please let me glean. So the first thing we can learn is she asked permission when she got there. She didn't have to ask permission, right? The law had provided for her the opportunity to come and glean. She could just show up and start, and the law said, you're not supposed to run her off. She is allowed to do this. Yet, out of respect for the landowner, she came up and asked if she could have permission. So she went above and beyond what was required to make sure that she was allowed to be there. Secondly, she worked for a long time. She didn't get tired of quit. said she's worked all day from morning until now. It wasn't that she came, the work got hard, she gave up and quit. She, she was committed to working for a long time. And then we see that she did it diligently. She didn't take breaks. She didn't, she didn't start a task and then be like, oh, but then my attention gets caught by this. And then my attention, this is how I am when I work. I, I am horrible at working on one project and staying with it for hours, right? I will start one thing and then I'll get distracted by this thing and I'll work on it for a few minutes and I'll get distracted by this. Eventually I'll get back to the thing I started on. It's a horribly inefficient way to work and you don't really accomplish as much if you can't just start something and finish it. And he says, she has been diligently at work all of this time. She has only taken a short break. She's remained focused on her task, and she's kept going. So let's move on. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Okay, we don't really know why Boaz said some of these things. 
Perhaps there had been some sort of incident where somebody had harassed Ruth. Maybe somebody had done something to her or tried to do something to her, and she was about to leave. She was like, I don't feel safe here. I think I'm going to go try my luck in another field. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Boaz felt the need to walk up and say, don't leave. I'll take care of this. I've told them not to do anything to you. They're supposed to let you continue to work. You will not be impeded. Go, Go stay close to the people. Keep up. He's giving her kind of extra like VIP access. Like you don't have to hang way behind. Get up close right where they're working so that you make sure that you're able to get enough food. Make sure that you're able to do this. If you get thirsty, go over here and get a drink. That, that, this broke all sorts of social barriers because at the time, if there was a well, and you got to remember, and, in, and the author keeps pointing out that she is from Moab, right? She is not an Israelite. In this culture, a foreigner would draw water for an Israelite. And a woman would draw water for a man. So when he says, let my Israelite men draw some water for you, he's saying, I would like to make an extraordinary provision for you. Something that breaks all social barriers, something that no one would expect, something that you would have no reason to expect that I would offer to you. Go over there. If you get thirsty, get some water. I want to make sure that you're taken care of. I want to make sure that everything is able to go well for you. So he's going above and beyond. Just like her work ethic was kind of above and beyond. Her, her level of respect for the landowner was kind of above and beyond. He's beginning to go above and beyond in his service and his, in his actions towards Ruth. And, what's, and, what's, and one of the things that I think is even more interesting is he's not even doing this with any like... It's not like he's trying to, he's not, he hasn't been told, oh, by the way, you're one of my kinsmen redeemers yet. Like, he's not doing this with any sort of, like, long-term thing. He's just doing this out of a genuine desire to take care of Ruth and her mother-in-law. So he's doing this just, just naturally. This is, this, is, this is the nature of his character. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she's obviously shocked, overwhelmed by, by his, his graciousness to her. She's, she's, she's taken aback, right? And, and that is her natural, like the natural response to the overwhelming gesture that Boaz has just made to her. She falls down on her face and just says, thank you so much. There, there's, I don't know why you would do this. She's saying, She's acknowledging you are breaking all sorts of social barriers. Like, like I'm not even from here and you're offering me all of this. Why would you do something like that for me? And it's not, okay, so I, so I made the thing, like, she caught his eye for some reason, not going to make it a romantic comedy. I'm not. But here's the thing. The thing that he was attracted to about her, the thing that drew him to her, was not like he saw her and he said, oh, man, she looks good. I'm going to go do something nice for her. Right? What's the thing that he points out? It's her character. He sees her and he says, I know the sacrifices that you've made to serve your mother-in-law. And because of that, 
I want God to bless you. I want to make sure that you're taken care of because, because you've sacrificed so much to be with her. You were offered the opportunity to go back home and live with your family, maybe even find another husband back there and, and, and not have to suffer through any of this. But I know the sacrifice that you've made. And, and, and having seen that sacrifice, I want to do good for you. I want God to do good for you. He says, I want the Lord to bless you. I want the Lord, where is it? In verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. The full reward given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. He's saying, and this is, this is that, that idea of hesed, right? The Lord bless you. The Lord sacrificially gives something. Like, like, I want you to be given whatever it is to repay you for the good that you've already shown to your mother-in-law. And then he uses this, this phrase at the end of verse 12. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's, he's reassuring her that when she committed herself not only to Naomi, but to the God of Israel. He's saying, you've now found shelter under the wings of God. God is now like protecting you with his wings. He is covering you. You are going to be taken care of. You don't need to worry because the God that you now serve is the God who is able to provide. He is the God who's able to serve you. He's the God who's able to take away your hunger. He's the God who's able to make your life whole again. In your emptiness, he is the one who's going to be able to serve you perfectly. So she's overwhelmed. She says, how could you do this? And he said, I'm doing this because, because, because God would have me do this, essentially. He's saying, because you have sacrificed so much, I'm going to sacrifice to make you whole. Let's go ahead and move on. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So once again, the level of provision that Boaz is providing is going so far above and beyond anything that's expected. He is expected just to let her come and pick up some scraps. Not, not just say, now get close so that you're getting the freshest of the scraps and you're making sure to get them before anybody else gets them. Now he's even saying, hey, you guys, why don't you take some of this and set it off to the side just for her? Why don't you make sure that she's able to get all that she can? And while we're at it, why don't you come over here and have lunch with us so that you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat for this meal? Like, I, I've provided a meal for my workers. Why, why don't you just come over here and be treated as though you're right here with us and you're, you're one of us? Why don't you share a meal with us? And it says she ate until she was full, and she even had leftovers, right? This is, what does this remind you of? Does this remind you of anything maybe that we've studied, maybe in the last couple of months, maybe that I preached through in John chapter 6? Yes, right? So Jesus sees hungry people. Jesus feeds 5,000 hungry people, not just to the point that they're satisfied, but to the point they're so full they can't eat anymore and there's leftovers. This is the level of blessing that Boaz is giving to Ruth. This is the level of sacrifice that he's going to. This is all coming out of his pocket. Any, any extra grain he's giving away is, is lost property in his eye. You know, that, that's, it's not like he's getting paid for this. He's not recouping anything for this. This is, this is him saying, I am giving you this gift. 
You have no reason. There's no reason that I should be this generous other than the fact that I desire to bless you. I desire to be sacrificial and be showing kindness to you, right? That's that idea of hesed that we talked about last week. Sacrificial kindness. Uh, somebody who's in a greater position blessing somebody who's in a, less, in a lesser position. Somebody who's unable to earn that blessing. That's the position Ruth finds herself in. And Boaz just keeps kind of doubling down, going further and further and further. And in a sense, Boaz has already kind of acted out, has, has said, we'll talk about this more. In a sense, he's already kind of acted out his, his actions as a kinsman redeemer in that he is taking what steps he can to make whole the emptiness that is like their physical need for food, right? Ruth and Naomi. He's, he's actually blessed them to the point that they're going to have enough food. And we'll see how much food she's able to get. But here's the thing. Just like Jesus, Boaz feeds Ruth. He gives her a meal, so much so that she's going to have leftovers. She's going to take her leftovers home to her mother-in-law and talk about how cool this guy was. Right? We're going to get there in just a second. But, but we're starting to see the similarities and actions between Boaz and Jesus. And I want us to hold on to that idea because that's where we're ultimately going. We're ultimately going to, to compare Boaz and Jesus. But let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to you, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay. So when we get those sorts of measurements, like in verse 17, so she gleaned in the field, and it came out to about an ephah of barley. Everybody knows what an ephah is, right? Yeah, perfect. So we're good. She has an ephah. So let's go ahead and move on. It's really easy to read those and just be like, it's an amount. I would assume... I don't know, this much. We have no, we don't have any frame of reference, but, but this amount is actually very significant, and I'll explain why. So an ephah, I'm not going to get into all the other things that, all the other conversions that have to be made to get to this point. It's somewhere between 10 and 20 liters, which we're Americans, so you're like, what's a liter? It's like 5 to 10 2 liters of Coke, right? Like 5 to 10 of those. There, there's your... There's your picture. A bushel. Again, I don't know what a bushel is. I don't know, I don't know bushel. I know, I know two liter of Coke. Okay? So 10 to 20 of those. Probably more than you can like, you're probably not going to carry like 10 to 22 liters all at once. But anyway, so, so that's a good amount. That's one day's worth of work. And it says that she continued to do this at the end of the chapter until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So that's about seven weeks. 
So if she was able, if that was, say, her average pace, say it's, say it's on the short side, say it's 10 liters of, of barley that she's harvesting a day to, on the high side, 20. So you've got a range there. She did this for about seven weeks. I know I'm throwing lots of numbers at you on all this math. The normal food ration for a person was about one liter of barley a day. So by the end of seven weeks, say it was on the short side, she would have gleaned about eight months' worth of food for the two women. On the high side, if it was closer to the 20, then somewhere over a year's worth of food she was able to harvest in those seven weeks because of the generosity that Boaz showed her, because of the special provision that he gave to her when he said, set aside some extra. I want to make sure that they're taken care of. This is, you know, we read, so, so we read that verse and we're like, oh man, that's an amount. I don't know that amount. Here's how generous he was. He just fed two people for a year by letting her work in his field every day. That, that, that's significant, right? That's a significant amount of food that he has now given to them. So it just goes to show how generous he was to both Ruth and Naomi. And it goes back to, like I said earlier, she calls him one of their redeemers. In a sense, he's already acting that out. He's already providing for them. He's already given them all of the food that they're going to need to survive for the next year. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. There's there's no reason that he should be giving that much away. There's There's no expectation that someone would do that, would go so far above and beyond what they're called to do. And so, and so Ruth comes home and she starts talking about, so we'll go back to the day she first comes. She says, I got to tell you about this guy. He, here, here's this food. Here's, here's this extra that he gave me. He went so far above and beyond. Here's how much I was able to glean. And, and Naomi says, who is it? And it's like it's building anticipation. She's just talking about the day. She's talking about the day. She's talking about the day. And then finally she gets around to saying, oh, and by the way, his name's Boaz. And the name is like, hold on. This is a bigger deal. This is a bigger deal than even you realize. It's not just that he's now given you all of this stuff. It's not just that you found favor in his eyes and he was very generous with you. This guy is one of our close relatives. This guy is one of our redeemers. And we're going to find out how, insigni- how significant that is going to be to them next week when we start. We're going to start with that idea of what a kinsman redeemer is supposed to be. But then in verse 20, in her response to learning that it was Boaz... Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, so then she moves on. So she offers this blessing, but if you, and, and, and it's translated in a way right here, the way I read it, it really reads like, May Boaz be blessed by God. But if you really look at the language the way it was written out and you translate it, it's a little vague who he refers to. He, like, saying, he has blessed us. When it says, he has blessed us, it's not... It's kind of, there's kind of a gray area. Who's the he that we're talking about? He God or he Boaz? And I think the author left that there vague, very intentionally. So that we start to get this idea that we are blessed by Boaz because Boaz is a clear picture of the way that God blesses us. The way that God sacrificially shows kindness to us. The way that God takes our emptiness and makes us whole. The way God takes a broken situation and makes it complete. The way God satisfies us. When we are in a dire situation where we are worried that we have nothing, maybe we're even tempted to become like Naomi and just become bitter and frustrated with what God is doing. He sacrificially provides for us. And we're starting to get that picture being painted for us, that Boaz is serving Ruth and Naomi in the way that God has served us. So the term there for when she says he's one of their family's redeemers is Goel. 
I'm not going to get into it today. That's going to be like point one next week. We're going to spend a good bit of time talking about the significance of that. But, but suffice it to say, the point of a goel, a person who is a redeemer in a family, is to make whole a, an empty, broken family situation. Which is, again, what Boaz has already even started to, to serve as. He's already started to bless them in that way. And it's also really interesting that in verse 21, right after she says, this man is one of our redeemers, that it, he jumps right back in and says, and Ruth the Moabite, right? He reminds us, remember, all of this is happening not to an Israelite. The, the, the heroine of this story, the person who's shown the most character thus far is a woman from another country. The person who, who has been shown the most interest by the picture of God in this story, Boaz, the guy who is representing God in our story, is showing the most interest in someone who is not an Israelite. Someone who is from another country, who all of her life was raised to serve other gods and take part in all sorts of other kinds of pagan rituals and stuff. Who knows? Who knows what they were doing? But, but yet, we're reminded... This is the person who this story is about. God has taken interest in the story of a Moabite woman. And to them, that would be shocking to think. But what we see is that that God's plan works through everything. Like, through all people. He he has intent for all of us. He knows what the story is going to be for all of us, no matter what the situation may be, whether it's we were raised in church, and, and our biggest sin was that one time that we lied about going to bed on time. I don't know. Nothing came to me. I thought something really good would come to me. Some good example. Nothing came. So that's the example you get. Or maybe we've been off the rails our entire life, living a crazy life, doing all sorts of things that somebody, that the church kid would then say, there's no way that, that God would take interest in you. We see the full spectrum. right? right? God, God is intentionally working in the lives of all types of people. So it doesn't matter which position we find ourselves in. He's he's still working in Naomi's life, the bitter person who's angry with God. He's still working to redeem her family. Ruth, the Moabite, the person who's from another country, who, who has no expectations that God would take interest in her life, who would do something beneficial for her. God works in all these types of people's lives. And so it doesn't matter where we find ourselves God is intentionally working out his plan for history, and that includes us to some level. He's going to be doing something with all of us. So when we got done last week, we were in a really broken place. We were in like the, that was like the depressing downer part of the book. They lost everything. They have no idea how they're going to survive. They don't know how they're going to eat. And at the end of chapter 1, we were given that little, that little glimmer of hope. And when it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Like, like God is beginning to bless Israel. He's giving them a, a harvest. There is hope. There is food in Israel. There is some, God is still working in their lives. We were given that hope. Naomi had taken her brokenness and she had, she had and, and by the time we got to the beginning of chapter 2 she she had remained in her bitterness right she was just sitting there not doing anything she was still down depressed frustrated with god ruth she's taking initiative to serve her depressed mother-in-law right she she is not she's not buying into the temptation to to act the way that naomi is she's not letting her mood keep her 
from doing whatever she can to provide, to serve, to take care of her mother-in-law. And now we have Boaz, who's going to, who's showered both of these women with all of this generosity. He's gone so far above and beyond what could be expected. He didn't just obey the law and allow Ruth to glean. He went so far above. Not just in what he gave, but in, but in the, the social aspects, the things that he, that he overlooked, the things that he set aside and, 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 and trying to bless these women. So, what are we supposed to do with that? First thing is we got to realize that in both Ruth and Boaz's case, they've emphasized their character so much in this chapter. They've said, look at what kind of a woman Ruth is. Girls, look at what kind of a woman Ruth is. She, she, she's respectful to the landowner. She's asking for permission. She's, she's going above and beyond to make sure that she is humbly submitting to the authority of whatever. Even though she's allowed, even though she has permission to do this thing, she is still respectfully asking permission. She's working hard. She's, she's working hard to serve her mother-in-law. She's doing whatever. She's not, she's not buying into the bitterness that Naomi has found herself in. Look at, look at the character of Ruth and then realize that it was her character, the things that she was doing, the actions that she was taking that were the things that caught Boaz's attention. Those were the things that he noticed about her. Those were the things that he said, I've heard all of this and I want to do something for you because I'm so impressed by who you are. Look at the character of Boaz. He's somebody who has, looks like he has everything he needs. He doesn't want for anything. There's nothing that he's worried. He's not worried about his next meal. He has people who work for him. He's not in any sort of situation where he's feeling tight or worried about the next day. And yet, instead of continuing to pad himself, provide himself more security, make himself feel safer, he sees an opportunity to go out of his way to bless somebody, to save the lives, in a sense, of two people. And, and no matter what it may do to his reputation for, for saying, hey, Moabite woman, why don't you go let these guys draw you some water? Right? And who knows what the guy that hears him say that's going to be thinking. Man, I don't have any respect. He doesn't care. He says, I, I want to make sure you're taken care of. Go get, you know, I want to serve you. So he's going above and beyond. He is, this is the character of this kind of guy. Somebody who is who is in it not for himself, but he is in it for them. He is in it for someone else. He is giving up what he has to bless someone else. That's something that we could all hold on to. Right? We've used that word hesed, right? So, so if there's a take home from this chapter, we should, we should do hesed. Like, that should be us. We should be known for our generosity, for our desire to sacrifice our our. our Income, our stuff, our time, our attention, our focus. We should be willing to let go of all those things because, because we've already been given. We know, if, if you're in Christ, you already know that you have been given the greatest gift of hesed that you, already, that you could ever imagine. We've been given Christ. We've been given a relationship with the creator of everything. And it would not make sense for us to take that and hoard it. Keep it to ourselves. We've, we've been shown the greatest act of hesed possible by Christ through his sacrifice, through his death. So that now anything that we would give away, any, any sacrificial act of kindness that we would show to somebody else pales in comparison and should not mean anything to it. It shouldn't hurt us. We should just enjoy the blessing of knowing that we are doing for someone else what God has already done for us. If you're not in Christ... 
Know this. That is what he's done. He has given everything of himself for us. He gave his entire... He, he came down from heaven. He gave up perfection. gave up glorification. Sitting on a throne. He gave that up to come down here, live as one of us, and die. So that he might bring us into a relationship with him. That is perfect. That is a perfect sacrificial act of love and kindness. And that's what Christ gave to us. So be in Christ. That's what I want. I want us all to be in Christ and to so appreciate, so recognize the significance of what he's done for us that we are willing to give all of ourselves to the work of making him known. Right? We're not in this for ourselves. We are, we are here to serve others. We are here, specific, like we are in this building, on this street, between these two neighborhoods, near downtown, all of this surrounding. We are here very intentionally because there are people here who do not know the love of Christ, who do not have people who take interest in them and show them genuine acts of loving kindness. That is why we are called to be here. We are called to be here for the people that are around here, not for us. We're not here because it makes us feel good. We're not here because this is a church that I feel comfortable. That's that's not the point. We're here because we are building a clan. We're building a family that's in it for one another, that's in it for supporting each other, taking the mission outside of this building to go love the people that are around us. So that's what we're supposed to be. So, do, so we have to ask ourselves, do we, do we really love the people that are in here? Because if we do, then we'll fight for them. We'll treat them as family. We won't just think of them as the people that I see when I come to church. Do we really love the people in here? Do we, do we love our CGs? Do we love the people that live around us for real? Because if we do, we'd be doing something. If we do, they would know it. But if they don't know that about us, it's probably because we don't really love them the way that we're called to. We aren't showing them the kind of love and sacrificial kindness that Christ showed to us already. And we're just hoarding that for ourselves. We're keeping it close where we feel safe with us. So do we generously seek the well-being of the people that are around us? Well-being physically, right? Boaz is feeding. It's not like he's saying, I want to show you the love of God. But I'm not going to give you any food. Like like step one. Step one of this redemption story. Step one of Boaz taking Ruth and Naomi and, and, and making them whole again. Step one is he's feeding them. He's taking care of some of their needs. And that's what we do. Like, like if somebody walks in here, we've got food. We've got like, first thing, are you hungry? Can I get you something to drink? Let's start with that, because I want you to know that I'm generally interested in your well-being before I start talking about everything else. We want to get to Jesus, but we don't want to we don't we don't want to get to Jesus. We don't want to get to Jesus and make it seem like we don't generally care. We're just caring about the conversion rate. We're just in it for the conversion rate. We're just in it for talking about Jesus and getting a response. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is we're here to love you. And we know that if we show you the love of Christ and you experience the true love of Christ, if you see Jesus for who he is, that you're going to want that too. That's what we're here to be. We're here to be the love of Christ for the people around us. So 
Ask yourselves, do I love the people around us? Do I love the people in this room enough to treat them like family or desire to have them be a part of my family? Or am I just satisfied being just the way I am? Being safe in here with the people that I'm comfortable around? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Because, because if we aren't loving the people that, we're, that we feel like we have been called here to serve and to love, if, if, if we aren't known for that, then that's probably because we're not loving them the way that we should. So let's pray.